Welcome to the Worst Bestsellers, where sometimes we actually read good stuff. I'm Kate. And I'm Renata. And this is our book and a couple other things, Year in Review. Hooray! 2022 is almost over. Yeah, we made it. Somehow. We're here. Uh, Yeah. So our our year end review episodes have kind of evolved over the years because because things are different now. They are, um, unfortunately. We used to. I think even when I announced this last episode, I said best and worst of the year, but we stopped talking about the worst because uh, just because everything is worse now. And also, like, (laughs) yes, it's true. Everything is worse now. And personally for me, because, you know, Renata has to read a lot of stuff for work. I don't have to do that anymore. So if I think a book is bad, I stop reading it. And I just felt guilty saying, like, one year, a Maureen Johnson book was my worst book of the year. I didn't hate it. I thought it was good. But, you know, when looking at the, like you know, however many books I had read that year, like that was the one that I liked less than everything else. And I just personally felt guilty attaching the label worse to it. Yeah. So the the worst book of 2022 was uh, the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. Third year in a row. Uh, yeah. Really unprecedented streak. Mm-hmm. And then we used to divide them up by genre and now we're just doing top five-ish books across all categories. Yes. And also, just a reminder, we mentioned this, I believe, in the last episode, or maybe we didn't. Mm -hmm. We've sort of gotten into the habit the past few years of taking January off from the podcast. Just uh, so that we could take a break and refresh. And especially because the way that we record episodes, we tend to record in December or record the month before we release them. So this gives us time to travel, to see our families, to relax a little bit before the new year and then get back to work for February. And we do have some very exciting surprises coming in February. (laughs) Yes. Also, I want to start with a quick Dorte Dorte update, which is... <laughs> is he just a little guy? He, oh my god, you would not believe. Um, when I was like getting set up, I if you don't know, my, my headphones that I wear for podcasts are like cat ear Bluetooth headphones, and Dorte was sitting in my lab, and I was like plugging in my stuff and checking on my notes, and then I sneezed really hard, and it made my headphones fall off my head and onto Dorte. <laughs> and the, the look that he gave me upon being like suddenly hit with cat ears, like he was so betrayed and affronted. <laughs> and I, I just, I, this is my public apology to Dorte for <laughs> these working conditions. <laughs> I it cracked me up last night. One more Dorte note before we move on this is the content you're all here for anyway we know it don't yeah don't try to hide that <laughs> um last night we were playing monster of the week um which is a tabletop role-playing game except we don't play on a table we play on zoom and Duarte was hanging out with renata like he likes to sniff the screen and like say you know his own disgruntled hello to us and show us his butthole and uh, our friend Corey's cat Pepper came into the room, and so she like picked up Pepper and was like holding 
her up to the camera like, oh, look, Duarte, there's a cat friend. Duarte turned his head and refused to look back Would at not the look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he is very much an only child. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, enough. Honestly, for me, never enough cute Dorothy talk, but I'll pretend like I've been stated. Um, let's start our book countdown. Um, do you want to go first, Kate, or shall I go first? Sure. All right. So my number five book of this year was a delightful accident. Uh, it was Take a Hint, Danny Brown by Talia Hibbert. And if you listened to our appearance on the Two Cents Critic, you'll hear what happened with this book, which was we were on uh, that podcast to talk about one of the other Brown family books. I believe it was Get a Life, Chloe Brown was the one we were there to talk about. Yes. Yes, correct. In my head, I... I don't even like this was all text based communication. This was not at some point someone saying out loud to me the title of the book, but in in the course of preparing for it, I went to library extension, found Take a Hint Danny Brown and took that out instead and read that. And then literally the day we were recording, I looked more closely at the email and realized that I had read the wrong book. <laughs> And had to rush to read Get a Life, Chloe Brown, which was very good. I enjoyed it very much, but I thought Take a Hint, Danny Brown was better. I delighted in this book. It is about Danny Brown, who is one of the Brown sisters that these three books by Talia Hibbert are about. Um, she is a grad student and uh, she's bisexual and she is done with romance She's been burned too many times. She doesn't want a relationship, but she does very deeply miss having regular sex. So at the school where she's a grad student, Zaf Ansari is a security guard. He's a security guard of the weird building that she she's, is working in. Um, he's got kind of a crush on her and he loves listening to romance novels. He is a hopeless romantic and absolutely like wants a like happily ever after sort of relationship and he's got a huge crush on Danny and one day there is a fire drill and Danny who's not in the habit of really reading her campus emails as much as she should does not know that a fire drill is happening gets into an elevator right as the fire drill starts and she the elevator stop and she gets stuck in an elevator so Zaf uh, pulls her out of the elevator and walks her out of the building. And of course, all of the youths are recording this like handsome man bridal carrying this hot young grad student out of a building on their TikToks and Instagrams. And it turns out Zaf was formerly like a C-list rugby player. And is working really hard on starting a children's charity and thinks that his niece actually is the one who thinks this, we could use this to your advantage. You know, everyone thinks that you guys are this like hot couple and that you like did this romantic rescue of her. And if you play along with it for a little while, then maybe we can get people to actually pay attention to your charity because he's kind of gruff. Uh, he's not, although he is like very warm and a hopeless romantic, he hates publicity. He has a lot of trauma 
from deaths in his family and he is not like the most personal person in the world. So of course Danny's like, oh yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't let the children down. And also you're super hot. And I'm convinced that if I spend enough time with you, we will have sex. And that is what I want, but I don't want a relationship. And Zaf meanwhile is like, I do want a relationship and I bet I can convince her that we should have a relationship. And they're just, I spent way too long summarizing this book when I could have just said it was a fake dating. Um, <laughs> but it's delightful. The characters are all delightful. They're, the tone is so funny. Talia Hibbert is just like, the way she writes, because this was the same in um, Get a Life, Chloe Brown, like she just is has like a delightful narrative voice and tone. Danny is hilarious. Zaf is very sweet. Even I, a lesbian, was like, yeah, I can see how this guy's hot. It, yeah, it was it was great. It was a delightful surprise. I really, really enjoyed it. And I think that everyone should read it. It's good. Well, maybe we can go back on Two Cents Critic and talk about that one. Yes. So, so you won't have accidentally read a book for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> My fifth favorite book of the year. Actually, I should say I'm once again cheating wildly because I uh, was hashtag blessed to be able to choose the best books of the year for children and uh, middle grade readers for the Boston Globe. And so I got to pick 10 titles for that. So I'm not recycling any of those because I'm like, well, I already said those were good. So some of my true faves are on that list, which comes out december 18th i'll link to it so check those out if you want like bonus picks from me but of the ones that aren't listed there either because they didn't quite make the cut or because they're adult books um my fifth favorite or because they didn't come out in 2022 which i think this one did though but anyway my fifth favorite book after all that ado is great or nothing which is co-written by joy mccullough carolyn tongue richmond tess sharp and jessica spotswood and it's, uh, if you can guess from the title, it's a retelling of Little Women, which I am definitely like a Little Women bitch. Um, I've, so I've read kind of a lot of retellings of Little Women. And for me, they don't always hit the mark because sometimes they get like way too hung up on the like Amy, Joe, Lori love triangle, which to me, like I prefer the sisters. Like I'm not as here for the love triangle as much. And this book to me like really got the sisters and it's set in a world war two and it adds all this like really interesting flavor like it keeps some of the original like you know because the original is civil war it keeps some of the like family wartime stress but it adds new ones like you know joe going off to do war work and just it's really good historical fiction and it's divided this way because each author writes for one of the sisters. So each sister really clearly has a distinct voice. And Joy McCulloch wrote really beautiful novels in verse. Like um, I think her book, Bloodwater Paint has been on my favorites of the list, favorites of the year list in the past. So she writes Beth. So Beth only writes in poems and they've altered the timeline a little bit. So Beth spoily is, is already dead at the beginning of the book. So she's just writing these like ghost poems as she like watches her sister from the afterlife. And it's good as hell. 
So if whether or not you're a little woman girly, like I think even if you haven't really read the original, I think it still stands on its own as a pretty cool World War II historical fiction book. Oh, and Joe is is canonically, textually, actively queer. So that's cool too. Um, so yeah, that's Great or Nothing by Joy McCullough at all. Hooray. I'm not a little woman girl, but maybe I will check it out. But it does sound, I I think I'll, first though, I'm going to recommend it to KL because that sounds like the kind of, oh yeah, the kind of setup that uh, they'd be into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So my fourth favorite book of the year was Experimental Film by Gemma Files, uh, which is a book and not a film. And this was sort of, I first started reading this as a little grumpy because it felt very misleading. I was looking for books that were done in a kind of mixed media style. And I thought that that's what I was getting into with this. Like it's, it's sometimes hard to write prose fiction in that style, but I've read so many good horror novels that are like a mixture of descriptions of security camera footage and emails and files and text messages and stuff like that. And I think it particularly works really well for horror. And I had read a short story that was kind of the precursor to this book called Each Thing I Show You is a Piece of My Death that Gemma Files wrote with her husband. And that was done in this style. So when I saw that this was recommended, you know, in conjunction with that, I was like, oh, cool, this will be done the same way. And it wasn't. It's just a regular prose novel. But after the first few chapters, I got really pulled into it and ended up finding it delightful anyway. It's about this woman, Lois, who is she's a former film professor at a for-profit university uh, that got shut down for obvious reasons because for-profit universities suck. And she even knew that at the time, like, but it was she loved teaching, she loved film, and she got to teach about Canadian film, which was her specialty and her passion and like the thing that she did a lot of research on before teaching. And now she's kind of like a freelance film critic. She's really stressed out because she is she and her husband are struggling sort of financially to raise their son who is autistic in a way that is, you know, helpful to him and not harmful to him. You know, her mother is a very much of the kind of ABA minded, like we need to teach him to do things. And she's like, no, like we're not going to do that. Like we need to let him be him. We don't need to teach him how to fake being normal. Uh, which is partially because Lois herself is also has realized over the process of diagnosing her son that she also uh, is somewhere on the spectrum. And in the course of her reviewing a film for one of the outlets that she freelances for, she discovers uh, at an actual experimental film done by this guy Rob, who she hates, who has sampled some silver nitrate film from a very, very early Canadian film. And in doing some research about the samples that he took and a book of fairy tales, of Wendish fairy tales that she read when she was in school, um, she becomes kind of obsessed with this film and realizes that it's possible that it was done by Canada's first female filmmaker. A, an eccentric woman named Iris Whitcomb, who was the wife of a, I think like a mine guy or something. She's very rich. 
Um, her son disappeared when he was a little kid and she kind of became obsessed with the spiritualism movement and trying to find her son after that. And it turns out also is making these films. So Lois decides to do a project. She gets some funding to write a book about Iris Whitcomb and her early films and her life. And that's when like everything starts going weird and she starts becoming obsessed with the imagery that was in the film and was in all of her films. Cause it turns out all of her films were retellings of the same Wendish fairy tale lady midday. And from there, the the image won't leave her alone. And she feels like perhaps she's being haunted. And all of these like wild things start happening to her and terrifying things. And it's very good. The tension rises very well. She does this thing in the book that can sometimes feel cheap. But in this book, it didn't. It, it really felt like it was ratcheting up the tension where based on like the vague references that she makes that Lois makes the the narrator you start to wonder if all of the characters are going to make it out of this book alive and it's like one of those things where like it could be taken two different ways you know she'll say like you know and Lo- I looked at the footage with so and so obviously like that's not possible anymore and so you're like is the footage gone is cuz she's telling this all from the past perspective or from the future she's telling she is writing a book about what happened to her Uh, and she's actually writing a book in the book this is theoretically like the book that lois writes about what happened to her but it was good i liked it it was creepy i would recommend it i also recommend the short story and yes i'm done now (laughs) sounds sounds spoopy yeah you wouldn't probably be into this one yeah, that's all right. Because what I was into was my number four favorite book, uh, Her Majesty's Royal Coven by Juno Dawson, who is a British transgender woman writing fantasy. So you can imagine <laughs> that she has some feelings. Um, and I love this book. It was so fun. And it really reads like a British transgender woman who's like, fuck you, JK Rowling. I do what I want. <laughs> and like I really like urban fantasy of the Harry Potter style of you know where it's like there's a there's a you know a regular normie human world and there's a magical world and the normies don't know about us and like we have our secrets to like I just I love that shit and this book is that shit and but it's not transphobic and it's actually it involves like a chosen one child who is transgender and there's a prophecy about the child's gender and some of the witches like lose their shit about it. Uh, And it's just, it's very satisfying because the turfs are like so clearly the bad guys. you (laughs) You just like love to see it. And it's like a fun magical world and it's like got cute British shit in it. And yeah, I, I feel like it just really sells itself. If you're like, Hey, what if, Harry Potter, but grown-up ladies and not turfy. Huh? What about it? It does end on kind of a cliffhanger, though, so I'm, like, dying for the second book. <laughs> so that's that's my warning, is the second book's not out yet, so get ready. All right. My third book is uh, Small Angels by Lauren Owen. All, all the rest of these are spooky. <laughs> 
Surprise. Like, we each have our individual brands, and that's fine. Yes. Uh, so Small Angels is told from a few different perspectives. Largely, it is a book about Lucia, who is uh, one of a family of sisters that has lived near Mockbaker Woods her whole life. Her fa- The family has lived there their whole life, and the family has taken care of the church, Small Angels, which is on the edge of the woods. And she was told as she was growing up, you know, we have to do things a certain way in order to, you know, appease the woods and appease something else that she is not told about in all that much detail. But she is the youngest and she's the most impulsive of her sisters. And she's lonely. You know, the girls in her family Everyone in her family, they live on the edge of the woods. They don't go to school in town. They're homeschooled. They have all of these duties that they have to perform for the woods and for the other creature that is out there. And eventually, in the graveyard of small angels, she meets a teen, Kate, who is escaping her home life by hanging out in the graveyard, as one does as a teen, Mm-hmm. And Lucia is instantly attracted to her, both in the sense of like, here's a teenage girl. I am not allowed to be around other teenage girls. She seems so cool. I'm fascinated. And in the, I think I want to kiss this person sort of way. Mm-hmm. And simultaneously, as we're hearing these stories about Mockbaker, about the family mythology, about the things that Lucia knows about what goes on in the woods. Uh, we've got Kate telling the story of her sister-in-law, Chloe, and her brother, uh, whose name I forget, Sam, I think. Yeah, Sam, who are planning a wedding, and or her soon-to-be sister-in-law, Chloe, and her brother, Sam, are planning their wedding. And after visiting Sam's family, Chloe fell in love with small angels, which no one has been into since something happened 10 years ago that no one likes to talk about. Mm. and but she is able to rent the church for her wedding from the people who are in charge of it now because lucia's family is gone and kate who is very low contact with her whole family for reasons of what happened at 10 years ago around mock beggar woods and the small angels church decides that she is going to come back and help with the wedding in order to keep an eye on Chloe and make sure that nothing weird is happening again. And uh, as the ceremony draws closer, it becomes clearer what was happening in the woods back then. Kate begins to regain her memories of what happened to her. Lucia tells more of the story of the background of what was going on there. And they realize that something in the church and in the woods is after Chloe and the old magic is coming back and they need to work together to stop it. And this was a great folk horror book, very like small town England, very creepy, foreboding, a lot of like, you know, old village tales that have like a sinister bent, a lot of things in the woods moving when things shouldn't be moving and things in the woods still when things should be moving. The characters were great. The relationships were great. Even Chloe, when she was being like obtuse about like, oh, yes, all of the villagers with their quaint little superstitions about this church. I still am going to get married here. Even then you find yourself rooting for her, not like being like, 
don't be like a stuck up city lady. But yeah, enjoyed this a lot. Listened to it in like basically one day. (laughs) Just walked around my house doing chores, listening to this. And like, yeah, it was really good. I recommend it, obviously, because it's on this list. (laughs) All right. My third favorite book of the year was Ducks, colon, Two Years in the Oil Sands by Kate Beaton. Uh, If you have the internet you probably already know and love kate beaton um and if you don't i'm i'm so happy for you to find out about kate beaton you're gonna love her who you know is the canadian cartoonist of hark a vagrant this is a autobiographical comic that part of it she posted online like i definitely had read part of this somewhere before it came out as a book but it's an amazing book it's it has some of like the humor that you you associate with Kate Beaton, but it's also so. I Dorte, Dorte loved it too, even though it didn't really have very many ducks in it, which is sort of <laughs> sort of a shame. It's so empathetic. It's so big hearted. Um, it what it is. It's a it's a memoir of Kate's. T- as the title says, two years in the oil sands, which she's from Cape Breton in Canada. I don't know a lot about Canadian geography. Oh my God, Dorte. Oh no. Come here. Come here. Am I still on the call? He walked yes, on the keyboard. You are okay, still on the call. Okay. And Dorte, stay over here. So she she spent two years away from her family in Alberta in the oil sands, which a lot of people would go and do and like take a few years to go work in the oil sands to because you could make a lot of money, but it was sort of like hard work and you were in these these camps where you were sort of like far from your family and far from you know everything. And especially they were like very the gender imbalance was like very, very male. So if you were a woman there, like Kate, you got a lot of sexual harassment, you know, sexual assault was present. There is, you know, Kate was sexually assaulted while she was there. So that is there, but it's, it's not, it's not graphic the way that she describes it. It's sort of like a, a fade to black. And then it's much more about the emotional effects of that, which, you know, still content warning for that for sure. But uh, it's just it's just a great book. And it's so um, it's something where, uh, in you know, in contrast with Her Majesty's Royal Coven, which gives you like pretty straightforward, like good and evil. This is not that because on one hand, as you know, an environmentalist, you want to be like, well, fuck, fuck the oil companies and fuck everyone who works there. But then you kind of see these families struggling and that there aren't really any other jobs. And it really is more of just like a. You know, it's it's a thorny it's a thorny issue, and you just like really feel for the humans and uh, the titular ducks involved who did die in the oil sands, and then that duck story ended up getting a lot more media attention than kind of the ongoing suffering of the humans there, which 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 makes you think, makes you think. Yeah, yeah that's right, Dorothy. <laughs> Anyway, so that's Ducks by Kate Beaton. It's just, I mean, I feel like a lot of people already read it, and I feel like a lot of people already love Kate Beaton, so I don't think I have to work too hard to sell it. But it it really is as great as, as people are saying, and, and cats are saying it as well. Yeah, we know Torte. 
Um, I said to Renata this morning before we started recording that I started reading this a few days ago. Duarte, it's my turn to talk. Um, (laughs) So rude. (laughs) I, I started reading this a few days ago and I've been really busy at work, so I haven't had time. And then in the evenings as well. So I haven't had time to finish it yet. And I was like, oh, I really like this book and I need to finish it so that I can talk about it at the on the episode that we're recording on Saturday and then I logged in to our Google Doc to start putting the other books I wanted to talk about and saw that Renata had already put this down and I was like yes I don't have to rush to finish this so yeah I've started it after also obviously because I exist as a human on the internet being a fan of Kate Beaton for a really long time and it is it is like rough in a good way I guess in a in a mm-hmm. human way it's just it's a it's a rough story especially because you know we all sort of have also these parasocial feelings about Kate Beaton who for many of us we've been following online for decades at this point you know so to to watch her go through this is just also hard um but it's a great it in again, again in a really good way like it's just really mm-hmm. expertly done but I'm not done with it yet, so who knows? Maybe it'll suck in the second half, but probably not. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but my second favorite book of the year is uh, What Moves the Dead by T. Kingfisher, which is probably not a surprise to anyone who listens to this podcast, because I do believe for the past two years, my number one book of the year has been a T. Kingfisher book. Um, oh, an upset. Yeah, I, I um, love... I love her writing in these horror books in particular. I've only just now starting to venture out into her non-horror writing, but she just, she nails these books. Even this one, I was a little nervous because her prior two horror novels were set contemporary. And one of the things I loved about them is that the protagonists seem to be like my age with my general, like, interests and vernacular and just their their voices in the books were so relatable and just so excellent and sharp and I was a little afraid because this is a unsort of described or maybe it is described but I just don't know enough about history to be able to pin exactly when it takes place but this takes place in the in the olden days not the olden olden (laughs) days but like the like earlier part of the 1900s maybe maybe world war one times maybe before that i don't know maybe before that even it's old timey this -hmm. one's old timey so i was a little afraid that the protagonist would not be as like hashtag relatable and as funny yeah those those characters don't have the internet and they don't know who k beaton is yes Exactly. They don't like when they're having an anxiety attack, lock themselves in their bathroom to read fic on AO3 until they feel better, which <laughs> legit is something that a character in one of her other books does. And it, I was just like, yes, I have also done that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, this is older timey, but still Alex, who is the protagonist, like they're super sharp. They're super funny. Uh, and also in the in the audiobook, Avi Roque does the narration, and Avi Roque plays Rain on the Owl House, and Rain is one of my favorite characters on the Owl House, and so it was just delightful to hear their voice throughout this book, 
as well. And I have said very little about the actual content of the book, which is that it is a sort of like body horror and environmental horror retelling of the fall of the House of Usher. Alex, who is the protagonist, they grew up in a a made-up country, and their childhood friend uh, sends them a letter and says, like, you need to come. I don't know what to do. My sister is dying. And they were also friends with the sister, so they're like, okay, yeah, I'm going to do this. And they go out there and go out to their ancestral home, which is not in the country, the fake country where they were raised. It's in a different fake country. And it is, like, weirdly overgrown by, like, mushrooms and other weird growths. There's this, like, fine white fur over a lot of things. And there are these weird rabbits and deer that seem wrong somehow. And Madeline, the sister, is sleepwalking sometimes she is seems like she's possessed the brother roderick is also acting strange and alex and the american doctor who roderick has brought in to help figure out what's wrong with madeline are kind of like left to try and and discover the secret that's making everyone and the house and the animals and the lake and everything else act so strangely. And it's just, it's spooky. There's, I, I don't know how Ursula Vernon can put jump scares in her books, which are words on paper, but she does. <laughs> and I love them. It, it was just really great. I listened to it in the pool and I loved it. You should read it. It's so good. I'm done now. <laughs> I'm not going to read that. No, you shouldn't. <laughs> you or not, I should not read it. <laughs> My number two favorite book of the year. I, I'm surprised to say, Jorte, stop reacting. It's too soon. Is Self-Made Boys by Anna Marie um, McLemore. Who Anna Marie McLemore has written several like well-regarded, acclaimed, award-winning YA books, and I've read a couple of them. And their other books, I can I can recognize that the writing is beautiful and like the stories are meaningful, but they're all in this kind of like magical realism style that doesn't quite like click for me personally as a reader. Like so, I'm baby, you're in the way now. In yeah, I think I think some of their for other books have been on my best of lists in years past. Yeah, like you know, I objectively a great writer, but generally stylistically not my favorite. But this year, I got really into the classics remixed series, which is from one of the public. It's from Mac- Macmillan, and so Macmillan is getting all of these like great YA authors to pick like a you know a classic from the western canon and remix it in some way which actually I'm pretty sure last year on my top list was um, Bethany Morrow's Little Women remix because like I said I am a little woman bitch (laughs) and um, 
Greater Nothing, by the way, was not in the classics remix series. It's from a different publisher. But you know, like I said, I'll read it. I'll read all the Little Women books. But this is from the classics remix series, and I had been really vibing on that series, and so I decided to check out Self Made Boys, which is Anna Marie McLemore's retelling of The Great Gatsby. And I think maybe the constraints of having to remix Great Gatsby, like it is in a more realistic historical fiction style that I personally prefer, but it's still like, you know, the writing is like beautiful and lyrical, but it's just a little more like grounded and I just loved it. And the way that they have remixed Great Gatsby is to, instead of Nick Carraway, it's Nicolas Caraveo, who is a trans latino boy from who um go, you know goes by nick and moves to moves to new york rents rents the house in west egg with help from his cousin daisy fabrera who is lighter skinned and has changed her name to daisy fay and is passing as white so she is like making nick pretend that they're not cousins that they're like old family friends or actually that he is the son of like their family's help which is kind of like degrading to nick but like she's helping him so okay and then nick becomes captivated with jay gatsby and finds out that jay is also trans and that's like partly why he's so weird and secretive and has like reinvented himself and i was like oh my god this actually like really works really makes kind of more sense than the original great gatsby (laughs) i was like oh yeah i get it (laughs) This totally is. This totally clicks. <laughs> and then, spoilies, because it's a remix, they get to change the ending, and it and it gets gets a, a happier ending than the OG Great Gatsby, which I loved. Um, and and I loved it so much that it made me want to like reread the original Gatsby, which I hadn't read since high school. And um, and I like the remix better. I gotta say, so <laughs> self- <laughs> look like yeah you know it's a classic like whatever whatever but um check out check out the new one let's throw out the canon and replace it with mcmillan's classic remix series <laughs> um including self-made boys by anna marie mclemore and i just the series like i mean i think it would be great for schools to like pair with like the original but i really feel like these books like they take these stories and like get to the heart of what makes them like quote-unquote timeless but they make them so much more relevant and so they're just good like they're good stories they're good books like and they've done they the publishers have done such a good job i think of like pairing you know actually i don't know if like the authors get to pick what book they want to do or whatever whatever they're doing it's fucking working i've loved the whole series but my favorite was self-made boys by anna marie mclemore hooray yeah now it's my turn again. And yeah. so I also cheated a little bit. Uh, <laughs> so my favorite book that I read this year is actually a book that I did not read for the first time this year. It's a book that I have read and reread over the past three years. So I kind of did a little tie for number one because it felt like it, it felt uh sort of disingenuous to say this is my favorite book of the year when everyone at this point who listens to this podcast knows that this was not the first time that I read this book. 
Uh, so I'm going to put a pin in that and talk about my num- my other, my co-number one in a second. But first I'll talk about a book that was new to me in 2022, These Fleeting Shadows by Kate Alice Marshall. And I, if you may remember from last year, I became obsessed with a series that Kate Alice Marshall has done, or two books that Kate Alice Marshall has done that are connected by the, uh, that are connected by a frame narrative where it is a supernatural researcher, uh, Dr. Ashford, who is interviewing these teens about supernatural things that have happened to them and we are these are another of those like mixed media sort of things where it's like interspersed with like their accounts of their of what happened to them with interviews with newspaper clippings uh text messages stuff like that and i loved those two books uh the rules for vanishing and our last echoes and this is not a book in that series but i was like yeah i'll read it i guess uh, the the tagline was like the comps were the haunting of Hill House and Knives Out, and I was like, I like both those things. I like this author. I'll read this, and I did like fully love this book. It starts out with Helen Vaughn, who has found out recently that her grandfather has died, and she and her mother fled the ancestral home several years ago, like ten years ago for reasons that Helen was too young to remember and they have not been back since they have barely spoken to any of their family members since. And, but she knows that her mother wants to go back for her father's funeral because she was at one point very close, but no one talks about what happened and why Helen and her mother left. So she and her mother and her mother's boyfriend go to Harrowstone hall uh, which they call Harrow, to go to the wake and the funeral. And right when they're getting ready to leave, her grandmother drops the bomb, which is that her grandfather, for some reason, has left her literally everything. Uh, she's left. Mm-hmm. He has left her the house. He has left her the whole inheritance, uh, you know, all of the grounds, the family business, everything comes to Helen except because they're like creepy weird old white people there's all of these you know Harrow Stone Hall has masters and in order to be inducted as the newest master to the hall Helen needs to stay for a year and not leave the grounds and prove that she can be you know the new head of household and she decides to do that because if she doesn't, not only will she be left with nothing, but the entire family will be left with nothing. All of the rest of the money will be donated to charity. The house will be sold. Like in order to keep the house in the family, she has to do this. So she decides to do it because she wants to find out like what happened to her here 10 years ago, why she has like weird dreams about Harrow, why all of these like weird things in her life seem to be connected back to this house and what like the secrets are, what the ghosts on the property, the figments on the property that she is seeing are telling her to do, like why they're telling her to do it, what they mean and what the other is, which is something that she eavesdrops on other members of the family talking about that she, Helen will need to please the other in order to be accepted as the new master of Harrow. Along the way, of course, 
I mean, of course, to me, this makes me happy. I wasn't expecting it, so it was delightful. Uh, she meets the Harrow Witch, who is a teen who lives on the property. Her father's the groundskeeper. And as long as Harrow has existed, there has been a witch who has been in conflict with the Harrow, the um, Vaughns themselves, but has sort of kept the spiritual creepy side of things been an ally to the, the creepy parts of Harrow. And of course, Helen falls in love with the witch, Beth. And she's got a couple cousins who are there to help her and who are on her side and not necessarily the family side. And this was just filled with so many twists and turns. Every time I thought I had figured something out, it turned out that it was something different entirely. All the characters were great. The style was so good. It was so creepy. I was really rooting for everyone in it. I mean, all the good Carrie, all the kids, <laughs> the adults were all kind of dipshits. And it just, I, I didn't, I couldn't predict anything that was going to happen. And then the ending is the sort of ending that I feel like normally I might be, I have, I have very weird hangups about what counts as a happy ending. And normally this like sort of wouldn't count as a happy ending for me, but it kind of did. The whole thing is is great. I obviously really recommend it. I recommend all of Kate Alice Marshall's creepy books. I've already pre-ordered her first adult novel, which is coming out next year. And then she's got another creepy teen book coming out next summer. And I'm stoked. It's very good if you're into that sort of thing. And I am. Okay, so I'm going to read a little bit from the book. There are a million, like, really great places to read from, like a really million really, like, creepy or interesting things. And instead, I'm going to read to you from um, a bit where uh, I just had a real, like, moment of queer solidarity <laughs> with this teenage girl. Um, so this is, this is Helen uh, trying to find out a little bit about Harrow and... Uh, deciding that she needs the help of the hero witch, a.k.a. Bryony, uh, the girl she has a crush on. I reached the end and started to close the book, but then I paused. I'd missed something. Tucked between the final page and the back cover of the book was a small envelope. It looked too modern to be from the same era as the notebook, and the handwriting on the outside was different. Harrow's girls, it said. The letters were rounded and squat, done in careful cursive, not like the scrawl at the front of the book, and made what looked like made with what looked like a ballpoint pen, which I was pretty sure didn't exist in Old Nick's day. The envelope itself was folded in half to fit in the book. I unfolded it, the paper crackling, and lifted the flap. There were four photographs inside, each one of a girl between about seven and twelve. The style of their clothes and the type of photograph anchored each girl in a different decade. The oldest photograph looked like it was from the early 20th century, the most recent from maybe 10 or 20 years ago. All of the girls had eyes so dark they were almost black. Harrow's girls. Benjamin Locke told me that's what they called girls who disappeared, supposedly devoured by Harrow. Had Bryony known these photos were in the journal? Were they part of why she had given it to me? After yesterday's conversation, having, having an excuse to talk to her again made me excited and petrified. 
I couldn't pin her down. She seemed to want to talk to me one minute and then resent me the next. To be friendly and then to hate me. She said that I'd... She said that I could be certain of her, but it didn't help me to know her feelings were genuine when I couldn't tell what those feelings were. Gah, I said eloquently, and then shook my head rapidly. Come on, she's just a girl. You know how to talk to girls. I did not know how to talk to girls. Talking to girls was terrifying. Witch, she's a witch, and she knows stuff you need to know. Better. I gathered my bag, stowed Nicholas Vaughn's journal, and checked my reflection in the mirror. My hair was unmanageable as ever, but I finger-combed it into a semblance of submission and headed out toward the groundskeeper's house. So yeah, um, it's a great book, and uh, I'm so glad I found it, and I'm so glad I read it, and I hope other people read it so that they can love it the way that I loved it. Love that for you. My favorite book of the year is not creepy. <laughs> shocked. <laughs> uh-huh uh-huh i am actually a little shocked that this is my favorite book of the year because um it's tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow by gabrielle zevin who several years ago her book the storied life of aj fickery was really popular and people are like renata you gotta read it and i read it and i was like mm, like that's fine it's like a b like it's fine but like i didn't really get the hype and then people are hyping this one. I was like, I don't know, Gabrielle. Like, I've been burned by you. Not really burned. Like, a, a minor. I've been minorly singed by you before. But, you know, people kept talking about it. And then I I sort of read the premise about being making video games. I was like, oh, that's sort of interesting. Like, I'll check it out. And I was like, oh, fuck. Like, Gabrielle, like, stepped up her game, which is a, a pun because it's about games but she really did this book whips ass i loved it so much i cried mm, just loved it it's um and I, I was thinking of it earlier when kate was talking about how she was looking for like mixed media types of books because this is that a little bit where it intersperses some like newspaper articles and interviews and like blogs and just like it makes it feel so grounded and so real um and it's the story of sam and sadie primarily who meet when they're children in an la children's hospital and sadie is there because her sister has leukemia and so she's sort of like abandoned in the like children's waiting room which has you know it's like the late 80s and they have like a nintendo uh set up so it's very like ooh nintendo and so she is there and then this boy Sam is there who is there because he's recovering from he doesn't really talk about it but he's had some sort of surgery with his foot and then the the whole thing with Sam's foot is like really unspooled later cuz he had he had some trauma um but so they meet playing uh Mario in the hospital when they're kids and then they grow up and they their friendship fades apart Fit, you know fades for a while and then they reconnect because they both go to college uh, actually in in cambridge she goes to mit he goes to harvard and they meet up again they, they meet up again on on the t and i was like i know that i know these, <laughs> these ups. so special special bonus if you are um you familiar know, with the, the mass transit area yeah if you're like 
Yeah, if you know the red line, you'll be like, I know her. (laughs) Um, So they reconnect, and then they're both still interested in video games, and they collaborate on making this video game called Ichigo that becomes like a huge cult classic game. And you really, like, this is where the mixed media stuff really, like, roots you in this world where, like, they become these iconic, you know, like, like a Mark Zuckerberg, like a whatever, like a real, like, college success story where it's like, oh, they just, like, coded it themselves on like two janky laptops in a dorm room and it's like the biggest game of the year and da 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 and so they have this like huge success story and then it's like where do they go next and it becomes this like sprawling story of like how success changes them and like where do they go next and it's also about like what is the point of video games and what do we do with video games and like what is the meaning of video games and there's some like really cool gaming metaphors like it just it really works it really works um also i cried a bunch also i loved that like there are love stories in this but at its core it's not the kind of book where you're like oh it's a boy and a girl and they're childhood friends and they're gonna like hook up and it's gonna be romantic like it's so it's so much more about like their friendship and their partnership and this like platonic important friendship. Uh, and it just like, I just love it. Just love it. Uh, and I'm going to read a little bit to you guys from uh, near the beginning when they're just starting to work on their game. They were young enough to believe that whatever they made, it could very well become a classic. As Sam often said to Sadie, Why make anything if you don't believe it could be great? It is worth noting that greatness for Sam and Sadie meant different things. To oversimplify, for Sam, greatness meant popular. For Sadie, art. By May, with Sam's purloined dry erase markers already squeaky and parched, Sadie was worried that they would never settle on an idea and that they'd run out of time to make the game. From her point of view, they were already on an incredibly, indeed impossibly tight schedule. They stood in front of the whiteboard, which was covered with their rainbow of brainstorms. There's something here. I know it, Sam said. What if there's not? Sadie said. Then we'll come up with something else, Sam said. He grinned at Sadie. You have no right to be this happy, Sadie said. While Sadie experienced this period of indecision as stressful, Sam didn't feel that way at all. The best part of this moment, he thought, is that everything is still possible. But then Sam could feel that way. Sam was a decent artist and he would come to be a decent programmer and level designer. But remember, he had never made a single game before. It was Sadie who knew what it took to make a game, even a bad game. And it was Sadie who would do most of the heavy lifting when it came to the programming, the engine building and everything else. Sam was not a physically affectionate person. Something to do with having been touched too much during his years in the hospital. But he took Sadie's shoulders in his hands. She was a full inch taller than him. And he looked into her eyes. Sadie, do you know why I want to make a game? Of course, because you foolishly think it will make you rich and famous. No, it's very simple. I want to make something that will make people happy. That seems trite, Sadie remarked. I don't think it is. Do you remember when we were kids and how much fun it used to be to spend the whole afternoon in some game world? Of course. Sometimes I would be in so much pain. The only thing that kept me from wanting to die was the fact that I could leave my body and be in a body that worked perfectly for a while. 
better than perfectly, actually, with a set of problems that were not my own. You couldn't land at the top of a pole, but Mario could. Exactly. I could save the princess, even when I could barely get out of bed. So, I do want to be rich rich and famous. I am, as you know, a bottomless pit of ambition and need. But I also want to make something sweet. Something kids like us would have wanted to play to forget their troubles for a while. Sadie was moved by Sam's words. And the year she had known him, he so rarely mentioned his own pain. Okay, she said. And then they did. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So my other top one favorite book for the year, which I've read many times before this year and during this year, is Season of Love by Helena Greer, to the surprise of no one. (laughs) You know, it feels a little bit like a cheat putting this on the list because, like, I, I did, I was involved with this book for, like, three or four years i've read it a lot i've read different drafts of it i've read uh i've i've been very invested in these characters in this world i want to live at kerrigan's which is a christmas tree farm where it takes place but also like i do i it was genuinely one of my favorite things i read this year so yeah but season of love if you have heard me talking about it but have not you know it absorbed any information about it uh is a queer jewish christmas romance novel (laughs) uh about a woman named Miriam bloom who is an instagram famous artist who finds out that her estranged but beloved great aunt has died her aunt costs owned a Christmas tree farm despite the fact that their family is Jewish and has turned it into a, you know, really prominent like Christmas escape. You know, there's Christmas trees, there's hot cocoa, there's crafts, there's games, there's, uh, it is the center of the small town of Advent. And even though Miriam hasn't talked to any of her family in 10 years for various reasons, Kerrigan's was incredibly important to her growing up. She spent every winter and every summer break there with her cousin, Hannah, and their best friend, Levi, who was the son of the um, caretaker and the the cook on site at Kerrigan's. Uh, she has great memories of there. Cass was like her favorite person. So, of course, she goes up to Kerrigan's to sit Shiva, much to the... Uh, consternation of her fiance who did not want her to take this trip but you know understands that you know this is important even though the things that they already have in place are also important and Miriam right from the start is very clear that like she's she likes her fiance but she's not in love with her and she doesn't want to be in love she doesn't that is doesn't work for her schedule. Uh, it doesn't work for her plans for her life. That sort of emotional vulnerability. So she is happy with the way the situation is here. Um, the things they can offer each other. It's very good for them both on a you know logistical level. So <laughs> they both kind of stick with it. And while Miriam is up there sitting Shiva, she meets the tree person who is on the farm, Noelle Northwood, who 
is Cass's new kind of the protege who has come up in the 10 years since Miriam was last there. And she is this hot, fat, butch tree farmer. And Miriam immediately is like, oh, no. Uh, (laughs) And Noelle feels the same way right up until the reading of Cass's will, where they find out that Kerrigan's was not left to Hannah, who has been managing the hotel and all of the other like ins and outs of Kerrigan's for years and Noelle who manages all the trees and stuff as they had assumed it would be, but is instead left to Miriam, Noelle, Hannah and Levi in equal measures. And Levi fucked off several years ago. No one quite knows where he is. He left to find himself and no one trusts that Miriam, who is famous for not staying in one place for very long is really invested enough in Kerrigan's to make it run. And so Noelle's oh no turns into oh no. Uh, Mm -hmm. She is furious and they realize that also Kerrigan's is losing money and has been for quite a while and that they need to come up with a plan to get it back on track. And also we discover that the reason that Miriam hasn't been back in 10 years is because her abusive father uh, threatened Kerrigan's and threaten the family and destroys everything that Miriam touches and now has heard that she has inherited part of Kerrigan's and is making a bid to buy it out from the bank and they have until New Year's Eve to throw the best Christmas festival that Kerrigan's has ever seen in order to raise the amount of money that they need to buy Kerrigan's back from the bank before her evil father does it. And I haven't even mentioned like Kringle, the giant magical cat, or Cole, Miriam's best friend, who's my favorite character in the book, or any of the other wonderful things that I love about this book. Kerrigan's feels like a real place. I want it to be a real place. I'm mad that it's not a real place. Despite having read this book many, many times during the course of it being written, I still cry every time I read it. It's just, it's delightful. It's wonderful. I love the characters. They feel like they could be my friends. I love the setting. And you should read it if you haven't. It's This is the perfect time of year to do so. It's great. The end. Yeah. I I only read it once, but uh, I, I liked it too. Hooray. <laughs> I'm going to continue. You know what? I keep we keep being like we're cheating, but also it's our podcast and we make the rules. <laughs> I'm I'm following the new rule I just made up. And in addition to the worst thing of the year being the pandemic, the other my worst book of the year is the fact that conservative fuckwads really like stepped up their book challenging and book banning game and the 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 biggest one that like a bunch of horrible transphobic conservatives who like didn't read this book like read like one panel and got worked up or like did what someone told them to do like the number one band in challenge book of the year is gender queer by maya kobaby anyway gender queer i had heard it was good before but i you know I, i just hadn't been motivated i guess to pick it up but now i'm like well if they don't want me to read it i'm gonna read it and it's it's an incredible graphic memoir. It's so moving and funny and heart-wrenching. And I was reading it. Oh, it made me so mad and so furious, which is the same thing as mad, but more so, that 
that anyone would ban this and anyone would call this pornographic and I if they would just fucking read it because it's so honest and uh, about Maya's experience like realizing that that he wasn't cisgender but not having the words and not understanding because he didn't have any role models or you know representation for their experience and how incredible it felt how freeing it felt to like finally realize like oh what i am is genderqueer and like these are the pronouns i can use and like there's nothing wrong with me like it it makes me rage cry to think that someone could read this book which again i'm sure most of the people telling the challenging this haven't actually read it but to read it and it's like hey having a book like this could make a a child like feel seen and heard and actually it's not for children it's like for adults but like you know a teen could read this and feel like seen and understood and not have to feel as like fucking miserable as maya felt and they're like no better get rid of that like just fuck you guys it's a beautiful book and like there's one panel that people got their arms got up in arms about where it shows a dildo on the panel and like it's not fucking pornographic i i i i'm doing like madeline con flames on the side of my face right now like this book is so beautiful and to ban it is and similarly i read for the first time this year because it was uh challenged a lot was out of darkness by ashley hope perez which is a young adult historical fiction set in um it's set in 1937. So it's historical fiction set based on like the real historical disaster in New London, Texas, where there was a gas line explosion that that blew up the school. And like it is still the the biggest mass death in a school in American history. And like, you know, we've been working on those lately. But like mm-hmm. this was like hundreds of kids died in this explosion. Like the whole school collapsed because of a, a gas line situation, which since then we have all like now that's why gas is like scented. So you can smell if there's a leak and like there's all these like safety regulations in response to like this real historic event. Um, and it's uh, a love story between a Mexican-American girl and a black boy. And, you know, I'd he- when this came out, I'd heard it was good. Everyone was like, it's so good. And I was like, that sounds like a fucking downer. Like, I... <laughs> I'm sure it's good, but it sounds so sad. And um, it was. It was really sad. I definitely cried. But it's hopeful. It's like throughout it, like the character. I loved these characters. I love Naomi and Wash so much. There's so much heart in this book. And even though it, um, you know, people do die in it, it's not like totally miserable experience the way i sort of imagined reading it would be i guess um it's really lovely and i'm so mad like again the people banning this i think read like one paragraph and were like Ugh, ban it and it's this is in multiple povs and one of the povs is just sort of like a general chorus of like most of the white boys in town who speak in like we and they have chapters that are like we think this da, 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 da. and when Naomi comes to school, they see her and they're like, she's so pretty. And there's a line that's like, 
you know, we imagine what it would be like to kiss her. We imagine what it would be like to like something. We imagine what it would be like to put it in her cornhole, which is like disgusting, but it's like from the point of view of these like gross boys. And also they don't. And it's like being challenged for depictions of anal sex, which like they don't do it. They like think about it. And also like put it in your cornhole. Like if a kid is reading that and they don't know, like, you know what I mean? It's not like, and then he put his dick in her asshole. It's like, oh, it's so stupid. Anyway, these books are great. Most of the other books that have been challenged are great. And even if they're not good, like you should have the right to read them if you want to, because this is America, honey. But these ones especially are so good. And it's so terrible that anybody would take these like one little line out of context and get up in arms about it. Like read a book, guys. God. I I read Gender Queer a couple years ago. And yeah, it is it is a wonderful book. I also like part of the thing that I didn't understand about it being so challenged this year is that it's not a brand new book. It's not new, yeah. Which was just I think it was I think it was on like one school's list and then like you know, some conservative in that time was like, um, pornographic, and then it went viral on the internet, and then everyone was like, Wait, this book is in our library too? Burn it down. Yeah. Um, but it is it is a beautiful, moving, wonderful graphic novel. And I I strongly co-sign it. And I am also just I I Yeah. Very Yes. On a lighter note. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so the past couple of years we've also taken a ta- talking about other things that were like cool this year that helped us get through it. And so I, I do have like some other highlights of my year. One of them is, so when I was a kid, I went to a lot of craft fairs with my mom, usually around Christmas time. The biggest one that we went to every year was held in this um, hotel where each of the like vendors would get like a suite. And Ooh. so you would just like walk down the hotel and like go in and out of the front rooms of all of the suites and see all of the stuff that they were selling. Um, which I love, like, I just loved it as a kid. I love that at like looking at all these things that people made, like having like samples of the food and like, it, it just, it was Christmas time. I love Christmas time. And I had really fond memories of it. And I've been trying to find something similar after moving to Boston. And this year, like I really hit the nail on the head. And um, one of my roommates, Kale and I have been going to, Many, like the past six months, have gone to dozens of these. Some that like recurring, like Somerville has a flea market that runs every Sunday. Um, and we went a couple times to that in the summer. And then last weekend, we went to their holiday market. The Providence Flea is incredible. I It is worth, if you're in the greater Boston area, like the 45-minute drive down to Providence, for sure. It's huge. All of the... The vendors are so great and they also do like other offshoot markets. We went to a really great Halloween one and then a Christmas one on Friday yesterday that I didn't go to because I was playing Monster of the Week with Renata and our other friends and their cats. Um, but that one is is great. Renata and our friend Grace and I went up to one in Lowell the little bazaar and that was really cute and it's in a really cute building um with lots of other cute shops in it and i'm actually going to that one again later today 
um, but I just, I really enjoy, I really enjoy it. And I love, I love collecting art. I love hanging art. I love getting jewelry. Like I wear jewelry all the time and now my ears are pierced. So I where I need to build up my earring collection and it's nice to go there and do that. I love getting gifts for people there. And it's been a really like, I've had a really stressful year for a lot of reasons and it's been a a nice thing to look forward to. And your money is going instead of going to target, which I understand. Like I also like to go to target and accidentally spend a hundred dollars. Instead of going to target and giving your money to target people, you're giving it directly to artists. And yeah. So that's the thing that I liked this year. Yeah. I had fun going to that one with you. Um, a fun thing for me this year, I got a piece of art put on my body. I got got my first tattoo, which, you know, a lot of my friends have like mad tattoos and people are always like, Renata, like, when are you going to get a tattoo? And for a long time, I was just like, I don't know. There's not anything I can think of that I like really want. And then I started joking that I should get a tattoo of... If you don't know him, please look him up immediately. The abandoned Sanrio character, Big Challenges, who is an alligator who has big challenges and faces them. And I love him. He's so cute. And I was like, that'd be funny. And I was like, I have a real problem where if I think something is funny, then I just got to do it. (laughs) Like, uh, basically. So I did. And I love him. I got him... um, and my ankle above, I have like some scars from having plates put in my ankle, which was a big challenge. So I, I like the symbolism of that. And I like that he's put where I sit a lot of times with like my leg crossed in such a way that I see that ankle and then I can look down at my little big challenges friend. Um, he's really cute. I will say, though, then a lot of people are like, well, once you get one tattoo, then you're going to want more. It's like a gateway drug. And I kind of feel like that's good. <laughs> And it it wasn't a lot of people like because you're you're afraid it'll hurt and then you do it and it doesn't actually hurt that much. I'm like, well, I, I I mean, I wasn't that the the idea of the pain of it wasn't what was stopping me from getting a tattoo because like like I said, I'm I had it put above the scar tissue from where I had plates put in there, <laughs> so I was like, I'm pretty sure a tattoo hurts less than that. Like I'm pretty sure I, I can handle that. And I by the way, I could. It's not. A big deal. <laughs> It's just like there's not that many things I can think of that I permanently want on my body. But I I am happy with big challenges permanently on me because he's very good. Yeah. Um, another good thing for me this year was I went to Iceland again. And I really love Iceland. I just I was joking. We were at World Market the other night and this Icelandic chocolate company that I bought some chocolate from before I left. I was like, oh, they don't have the one that I like. You know, I'm so bummed. And one of my friends was like, oh, well, they have a that like variety in this brand. I was like, no, it won't be as good. And I realized that I've become like the teenage girls who are like, I'm obsessed with England and England's better than the US. And like, <laughs> except about Iceland, I just really always want to be there. <laughs> and it was at times it was a very stressful trip, but also like I also don't regret it which i think is a good sign um but it's just is beautiful it was relaxing you know it's Reykjavik is my perfect sized city it's exactly what i want out of a city and yeah it was great it was a a big a big calming wonderful moment outside of a pretty stressful year 
Nice. Yeah, I I didn't go to Iceland, but I took some other trips this year. This year for me was really about, you know, obviously it is still pandemic and like I do sore mask on plane and stuff, but it was about feeling like basically like safe enough to travel pretty regularly. And so I took some smaller trips to visit friends in various locations around the country that I hadn't seen in a few years because of the pandemic. And it was just like nice to see everybody again and nice to have some like non-fraught just little like weekend getaways yeah um i also started this year one of the projects that i work on at work the one that i like the most gratitude is a big thing in it and i started to get embarrassed this is a, a newer thing for me but at the end of we're doing this class right now and at the end of the class every week it'd be like okay we're gonna do a quick round of gratitude everyone and Every week I was like, um, I, uh, struggling to come up with something that I was grateful for, which isn't to say that I'm not grateful for things, but that it's hard when I'm put on the spot like that to think of something off the top of my head. Um, so I started in my like little to-do list slash kind of bullet journal, but not really, I don't follow any of the rules planner thing that I have every day trying to make a list of like three things that I was grateful for that day, which is such a weird little thing. Um, but A, it means that I'm not put on the spot when they call on me to share gratitude um, <laughs> at these meetings. And B, like it is a helpful reminder to focus. I've had a lot of trouble focusing on the good this year sometimes. And it is nice to to be able to take a time to do that every day. No, that's really – I don't think that's weird. I think that's very lovely. And I think that's something like whenever we read a self-help book, like The Secret or whatever, like – it's I always kind of have to like temper myself because I really do think that choosing to have positive thoughts and choosing to be able to like focus on things you're grateful for, like not to the point where you're in denial and not also acknowledging that there are problems. But I really do think that taking time to be like, you know, focus on your vision board or like focus on things that are nice. I mean, I think it's nice and I think that can really like help your mindset yeah not to the point where it like completely changes the rules of the universe like Rhonda Byrne says but like it's not nothing yeah not to the point where you're blaming tsunamis on the people who were killed but yeah but it is nice to take a moment and be like well I'm I'm glad I'm not currently experiencing a tsunami exactly that's nice for me (laughs) (laughs) you know what I love this year was Better Call Saul like (laughs) (laughs) it had its finale this year and i god like breaking bad and better call Saul have been like a huge part of my life for like i don't know 10 plus years like that whole expanded universe of the criminal underworld of albuquerque new mexico like (laughs) those shows are both so fucking good and the finale like i still think about those characters all the time i'm just like i hope kim's okay like i (laughs) She is. She will be. She's just, she's just, she's a survivor. Um, I just I they're so fucking good, and um, I really I miss that it's not on anymore for me to watch new ones. But I thought the finale was so perfect, and I just it was everything. It was everything to me. Thank you so much, Vince Gilligan. <laughs> <laughs> Also, a thing that I did this year that I talked a little bit about in our origin stories episode is that 
Uh, I was officially now diagnosed with ADHD, which was not something that had really um, crossed my mind. It had occasionally, it had occasionally crossed my mind over the years, but, you know, it's very easy, especially coupled with depression to think like, well, yeah, other people have a serious problem that they, you know, and that's why they're like this. I'm just bad at things. I'm just, that would just be an excuse for me because really like my problem is just that I... I'm a bad person who can't focus on tasks or who can't, you know, get things done or who doesn't, has a bad memory or, you know, puts things off to the last minute in like a really toxic kind of way. Uh, And I would kind of like, oh, well, like that's just my depression. Like my depression is the reason that I'm like that. Like it's not anything beyond that. And Last year, I started seeing a new psychiatrist because I needed to change my depression meds. And as I was describing the issues, because, you know, depression does have executive function issues that go hand in hand with it. And as I was describing my issues and describing how long I'd had the issues and describing like my day-to-day life, my therapist said, do you think you might have ADHD? Have you ever been tested for that? And I was like, oh, no, like, I know I haven't been you know, it's probably, it's just the depression. I think I'm, I'm fine. I'm nor- not, not normal, but I'm, you know, I'm just <laughs> bad. I'm, I'm not, I don't have a reason for being this way. I just am this way because I'm not a good person. And as time went on, she kept kind of gently suggesting it like, Hey, like, cause I had said like, I think, you know, hopefully like if I get my depression stuff under control, I'll be able to get the other stuff under control too. And then like, it'll be fine. So like, as we were adjusting my, my pills and everything, you know, she would say like, okay, like, I do think this is something we should keep in mind though. And then, you know, this was kind of on top of like several friends that I have were diagnosed with ADHD, adult women who I'm very similar to uh, were diagnosed with ADHD during the pandemic because the pandemic really, you know, changed the way that a lot of people were working and unfortunately destroyed a lot of coping mechanisms for people, I think. So then there was also this kind of feeling like, oh, well, like if I do this, it's just because like I'm hopping on the bandwagon. Like I'm just trying to seem like cool. I don't know why having a brain that functions this way that is detrimental to the way that typical society functions would make me cool. Um, but this is what my brain was telling me, you know, so definitely not. And then, you know, finally my psychiatrist was like, okay, like we got my depression under control, but there were still certain things that were happening that were not being fixed with the pills that I was on for my depression. And she was like, okay, like, I do think that you need to take this test. You know, I can't, she's telehealth. So she's like, I can't set it up here but you should like see if you can get a referral or something from your PCP to have this done and I did and I in within five minutes of talking to the very nice gentleman who gave me my ADHD test he was like yeah we're gonna bring you this was like the pre-test test test. he was like yeah okay I'm gonna schedule you for cut to come in person for the actual test and we're gonna keep talking but for I'm just gonna let's I'm just gonna get this out of the way we're gonna schedule this now and I was like okay cool Mm. Uh, And then I came in and I took the test and I still thought like, oh, this is easy. This will be easy. This will be fine. Like it'll prove once and for all. Spoiler alert, it did not prove once and for all that I didn't have ADHD. I was just a bad person. It did in fact prove that I have ADHD. Um, 
and it's only been like a couple weeks since that happened, but it has been looking at the way that I behave and the things that I do and my issues with tasks and attention and follow through and conversing with people and remembering things and procrastinating through that lens has already like fucking changed my life. So that was a pretty big thing that I did this year. You are still a bad person though. Okay, but for good. Other, but for <laughs> other reasons. <laughs> Sorry, my shoulder double went out on that one. <laughs> My sh- my shoulder angel is very proud of you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> is your shoulder devil Duarte who's yeah, whispering yeah. like she never pats me? <laughs> yeah, you got it. <laughs> she doesn't let me climb into her backpack. <laughs> Uh, yeah, for reasons that have nothing to do with your ADHD diagnosis. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I got, I got diagnosed with anxiety this year and I started taking pills for that and it's great. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm also a bad person, but separately. <laughs> <laughs> You're not letting Duarte knock over your microphone. <laughs> yeah, I'm not letting him put his face, actually I do let him put his face in my cup because why not, but I don't let him put his face in Lindsay's cup. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah it's pretty good yeah it's pretty um, good to fix my brain <laughs> yeah i'm very pro if you're thinking about getting your brain fixed go for it <laughs> honestly yeah it's it's good it's good to do that um yeah yeah and then you know just to say i think I think off the topic of brain, well, kind of still one of the things that is, this has been a hard year for me for various reasons, but Renata spending time with you and Lindsay and our other friends has, as always been a delightful highlight, whether or not we're playing birds, I put birds on my list and then I was like, I realized I put birds on my list last year, whether or not we're playing wingspan or doing other things or playing other games or hanging out or um, getting food or whatever. Like, I'm very thankful that I have you in my life and grateful for our friendship. Same, Kate. And you know what? We got different birds this year. We did. Now we got got the European ones. Yes. And the Asian ones. No, the Oceana ones. Yeah. I think maybe we did have those ones last year. No, anyway. This was, that was a Valentine's Day present. You're right. Okay. We got all, we got all the birds now. Yeah. So, yeah. They're so beautiful. They are. They're they're just beautiful birds. <sighs> yeah, play wingspan, folks. It's real good. <laughs> yeah, play wingspan. Take a take some brain medicine. Watch Better Call Saul. Go to Iceland. Yeah, and think about all the things you're grateful for in your life. Yeah, and and if you're not allergic, pet a cat. Yes. Honestly, if you are allergic, I don't know, maybe suck it up. <laughs> Did you see the picture of my eye? No, actually, I, I think maybe you didn't. The picture of my <laughs> face after I touched Harvey's toe beans one night because they were so perfect. Oh, and I was like, oh, oh I'm just going to with one finger touch them. And I woke up and my entire side of my face was swollen. Okay, well, you get it. You get it. 
a dispensation to not touch a cat. Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, thanks again, by the way, to our patrons for picking such a good book for us to read this year. Yeah. As, that was another thing I was grateful for. Yes. What a delightful little, uh, little treat for us. Yeah. Um, we're thinking about maybe restructuring some of our Patreon rewards for 2023. So if you're thinking about becoming a patron, do it. <laughs> yeah. And um, uh, if you need a last minute gift for any of your anyone in your life who you think might want to wear podcast merch uh, or carry podcast merch or put, you know, like a magnet of podcast merch on their refrigerator. Do it. Do it. Our Tea Public shop. Tea Public is having sales all December on different things. So you should go to our Tea Public shop and buy some podcast merch for the people in your life that you love who you want to tell them what president she would fucking marrying or killing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if you happen to Tea Public on a day when they're not having a sale, our beloved Patreon patrons do get a discount. So check that out. Um, also, like like we said at the beginning, we're taking January off, and we will pause the Patreon then, so you can you can join and not even have to pay any money for January. Yeah, actually, but we didn't put our normal closing script in this document, so we're just winging it. If yeah. that wasn't clear, I think I think <laughs> if you listen to this whole episode where we just talked about things we like, especially at the end, you probably know where to find us on social if media you made and it. such. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, we have some really great. I'm very excited about our February um yeah so you know i'm it's gonna be great um it's gonna be great um we are we are still at this moment on twitter at worst whistler with no s because uh saul goodman took the s when he changed his name he took our s and you know what he deserves it <laughs> Um, we're on other social media at Worst Bestsellers spelled regularly. Um, mm-hmm. and you can find us on all of the places where you get uh podcasts. Apple mm-hmm. Music or Apple po- wherever fucking podcasting Apple's using these days, uh Amazon what, Music. Whatever Spotify. you're using to listen to us, we're on it. Yep. Um, and also <laughs> special thanks to all of the folks who we were in their Spotify wrapped this year. Oh yeah, um, that was nice. That was I still can't get over the fact that over 6500 people had us in their top 10 listen to podcasts on Spotify, not even counting all the other ways to listen to podcasts. That's mind-blowing to me. Um that is pretty wild. Yeah, thank you all for listening. We appreciate it. That's so many people. <laughs> oh my god. Hi guys. Uh yeah. <sighs> We told you about merch and where to get it. Um, and, you know, a good Christmas present for us would be to leave a, a rating and a review on one of those places you listen to podcasts. Oh, true. Yeah. Love that for us. Yeah. I still won't read it because of my anxiety. Yes. But it's nice to know it's there. Exactly. Oh, will help. help probably. What other things? Website, worstbestsellers.com. Our Discord is on there. Um, if you've been a member of our Discord community this year – Thank you for being there and for being so interested in us and in the podcast and for hopefully having a good time talking about things with other yeah, folks. Thanks for, all the, thanks for all your cat pics. I love to see them. Yeah. And other animals, too. I love to see them. Your memes, your book recs, your, like, random Twilight shit you see. Love Hell it. yeah. Hell yeah. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
she ends up in a uh like she works at a mm, caitlin edit this out get your thoughts in order deep breath think about how books work <laughs> and storytelling we we don't know but we use them yes 